0: Welcome to this episode of the Outfront Podcast with host Vince Noble. The podcast that gives emerging leaders and career transitioning individuals the information and inspiration to thrive and become their best. For
1: sponsorship and advertisement opportunities, please contact info at
0: nobleresolutions.com. And now, your host, Vince Noble. I want to acknowledge... Each and every one of you who is stepping into your authentic power today. Hello everyone and welcome to the Outfront Podcast, the show that gives emerging leaders and career transitioning individuals the information and inspiration to thrive and become their best. I am your host, Vance Noble. Hey, I am super excited today we have the distinct pleasure of having with us Ms. Elizabeth Leiber, a university professor, co-host of the Ed Up podcast and social justice activist. As always, before we get started with these extraordinary conversations, I want to say as much as I love having intellectually stimulating conversations, they are more than that. They are meant to be more than that. They are meant to pique our intellect. They are meant to drive us into meaningful action. So as you listen, our guests are not solely on this show to promote themselves, their services or products, however, in large part, to provide significant insights and actionable steps to engage you, thereby helping to shift you from one level to the next. So I encourage you to listen and think about how you can make a difference. No matter who you are, it is my greatest hope that you find tremendous value in today's episode. I for one clearly understand after spending most of my adult life abroad in some not so good places, that equity, access, participation, and basic rights is not always easily achievable. The past few years, particularly in America, has certainly been both destructive and challenging on multiple levels from a social justice perspective. Diversity and inclusion continues to be a top priority for civic and business leaders around the world. After all, ecosystems thrive on diversity, and the world of business is no different. But the journey to building a truly diverse and inclusive workplace and society can often be a long and daunting one. So, in this episode, we'll be diving in on all things race, social justice, and equity. Elizabeth is also a published writer who wrote uh, for the Sun Sentinel newspaper and was the editor for the Seminole Tribune newspaper for several years. She was also featured recently in a New York Times article about her social justice advocacy work. We have a lot to uncover in this episode, so let's go. to the show today.
1: Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, it's certainly, certainly a pleasure having you today. And um, I'm sure we're going to have a wonderful time spent with you today. Looking forward to it. Yes. So, so Elizabeth, for those who may not know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, your early life influences. Um, What was it like growing up and what, what what has brought you to the work that you so passionately do today?
1: Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, I would say a lot of my life view kind of reminds me of what you just said, in that a lot of my life view is formed because of the fact that I was not born here in the United States. I actually was raised in Florida. But I grew up in London until I was about 12 and my family immigrated to Fort Lauderdale and had, I would say, a pretty rude awakening about what Mm -hmm. life in America as an immigrant was about, I think. They were kind of a little bit like and they were young because they were pretty young parents and we, they were three of us kids and they kind of felt like America. My, my grandmother was living here and it would be an opportunity to just have better educational opportunities for us. It's a big whole country that you could take advantage of as opposed to London being in the UK, smaller, not as many job choices and and things that you might be able to just, you know, the the sky's the limit. You always see that on TV. We'd watch a Cosby show and just feel like, wow, you could just, anything you could think of, you can do in America. So we came here and it was a rude awakening. The five of us lived in my my grandmother's um, one bedroom and we slept on the floor and we, my parents were working two and three jobs and and that wasn't what they were used to in the UK. It's just my, my uncle, I'll never forget. He said, you know, you guys got to hustle. You know, this is a dog eat dog country here. Like y'all thought this was London. This is not London, you know? And, um, that was what my parents did. They were going to school. They were working like two minimum wage jobs. They, they weren't used to that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. London was very different so being here from that time it kind of gave me that mindset of okay you got to work hard and you got to work double hard and there's no room for error and that was what my parents instilled in us from day one like we didn't come across the globe for you to be lazy you have to get it and that's what we did all of us went to college we um, all were working professionals and I think for me it was always like if I achieved one thing, I was always looking to achieve something else. Once I achieved that thing, it was, okay, what's the next challenge? I just grew up with that mindset because I saw my parents sacrifice so much, and that made me always look toward the idea that not only do I have to be good, I have to be better than everybody else.
0: You know? Right, right, right. So there was a, a, a eventually what came around, a strong sense of, 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 of a work ethic. Yeah. Um, that you carried over into adult life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've always had that, always had that drive, always been looking for the next thing. But I think I also carried with me a sense of not feeling good enough, not feeling like I could ever get to the point where I was truly comfortable and satisfied. So that was another thing I think that I wrestled with a lot going into early Mm -hmm. adulthood and just always feeling like, okay, the more that you push, it just seems like there's always obstacles you're having to climb over. And it just this right, never yeah. ending, like almost like a hamster wheel where you're constantly pushing yeah. and pushing and pushing. So that was always, I think, in the back of my mind as well. Um, as far as how I got to this point in my life and being more outspoken about social justice, like a lot of us, I almost I would say snapped, almost had like um I want to say a come to Jesus moment for those that are not very Mm -hmm. religious, but definitely a moment of like a rude awakening just like ice bath, just like, wow. Like seeing something like that, I think, and I've seen, I've seen death up front and and close to me, whereas it's family members or, you know, I've had people murdered in my family. I've had Mm. seen friends that have passed away that were close to me. So I think the idea of death itself is not something that is foreign to me, and I think with Mm -hmm. family, my family's originally from Jamaica, so there is more of, I think, that island mentality of life being more, it's kind of a little bit closer to the African roots of life being more of a cycle. So I don't think Mm -hmm. it's, uh, I've always grown up with the idea that life is not finite and it's not anything that I'm afraid of or uh, felt like, oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's a bad thing. We just look at it like you go in, you're in one phase and then you're in another phase. And I think that's always just the mentality that I grew up with. So the, the idea of seeing somebody die in in this case, the George Floyd murder was not like Mm -hmm. that part of it. The death part of it was not the part I think that was such a, a rude awakening. The idea that an agent of the state could so calmly kill someone that didn't deserve it Mm. and to witness Mm. that and to know that if not for the color of his skin, that would not have been the case. There would have been more caution. There would have been more, um, just a little bit more compassion, a little bit of like, hey, let's let's not rush to judgment. But all those things were thrown out of the window because of the colors of my skin, because of a feeling of feeling threatened, which was unwarranted. It really made me just it's like a light bulb switched on and a lot of those things that my parents instilled in me just put your head down just work hard if you comp- comply to this or you are uh, or, or that or you you try to be this or you try to be that all these things that you're told growing up especially as an immigrant you know you have to be a part of the culture here you have to learn and even people ask me you're from england you don't sound like it i perfected that because i grew up in Fort Lauderdale and it was like, I have to fit in. I have to be
0: assimilated.
1: And then when you go into, I went to a PWI, I went to university of Florida. So that was in another level of assimilation. I have to be like my counterparts, the majority culture. I have to make sure that I don't stick out. I have to make sure I blend into the crowd. And I think the reality check of seeing George Floyd was it really doesn't matter if you're not complying, if you're calm, if you're saying please, if you're saying sorry. Even my mom said it. She said, what else could he say? He said, sir, what was he supposed to say? Right. Master, what was he supposed to say? Like, your honor? Like, what was what was the verbiage? And, and I think that was a frustration that many of us felt. It's nothing to do with how you look or how you talk or how you act or how you there's always going to be another hurdle. And I think it goes back to what I said initially. You know, you're taught that every single hurdle just keep jumping and you'll get there. And I think that situation showed us that it's not about that. You know, at the end of the day, the system needs to change. People's perspectives needs to change. The laws need to change. Society needs to change. We can't change because we weren't meant to be here, (laughs) you know, we were brought here. So it's not fair to ask us to be something and to comply with these never ending lists of challenges. You know, it's just like you're in a bad relationship and a person keeps saying, well, if you did this, I would be better. If you did that, I would be better. And the list is never ending. Right. It's a toxic situation where you can never be what that person is looking for. And I think a lot of us came to the the conclusion here after watching George Floyd that, OK, we just watched someone who was clearly did not deserve that. There's no way you can say this person was doing something unless you're just making stuff up. So that's where I got to the point of feeling as though I have to speak up. It's no longer acceptable for me to just put my head down and do what I had been doing, which was kind of putting the blinders on and saying, if I just keep pushing forward, things will be better because that's simply not true, especially for someone like me who's been to college, has a graduate degree, that's worked in higher education as a college professor. I've done, checked off all the things that I should do, And still, I know that treatment in the workplace or treatment in society is not equitable for me. So even worse for somebody that hasn't met those imaginary mile markers. So I I just had to speak up and start speaking my truth and do better to bring awareness to these issues.
0: Absolutely, and and you know the 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 reality of that is is that um, the work that many of us do. As you said, in time, and in many, uh, in, in the way we are to view it, is that we are just passing in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the work that many of us do or commit to doing, um, we may not be the recipients mm-hmm. um, of what comes or what's to follow, if I will, if you, if I was to say, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, and, and so um we we still have we should still have this um idea um not only in america but um globally mm-hmm. that, that there's still hope in the world there's still hope for america but and, and again the work that that many of us do um, we we may not be the recipients of 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 the what what is to come Right.
1: Absolutely. I've come to accept that, too. And I think it goes back to, like I said, my my um Caribbean descent background ancestry, where life is looked at as a cycle. It's like the circle of life, like we saw in the Lion King, right? it's It doesn't mean that because I'm not going to necessarily be the recipient, that I don't feel just as passionate because I look at John Lewis, who was arrested 40 times. I look at mm-hmm. Rosa Parks. I look at Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I look at all of these uh, social justice warriors, as you want to call them, these advocates for change, these civil rights activists like Angela Davis and like uh, Asada Sugar. There's so many, the list is like, you know, it's as long as your arm of of those that have come before us, and they have done the work. And I think sometimes you do get a little bit like, wow, when is this going to materialize? But I think we're at a very special time where people are really invested in, in the idea of change. And for most of us that are on the cutting edge of trying to make sure that we raise our voices, it's been the act of, well, this is not necessarily for us, but it may be for our children, like you said, it may be for our grandchildren. And we want to keep pushing the envelope. We want to keep pushing the conversation forward. We wanna make sure that people don't forget that every single moment is precious and it's our duty, it's our responsibility to make sure that all of these different ideas, whether it comes to equity, whether it comes to justice, whether it comes to community policing, whether it comes to wealth distribution, whatever these topics are, I I think every morning I wake up and this is something else that I think about. This is something that I I think people should understand or know about. And I think, you know, people can take to their jobs. They can take to social media. They can take to just educating people in their family. I always tell people, I think people ask, well, Where do I start? Well, start in your area of influence. If you have a podcast, Mm -hmm. then talk about it on your podcast. If you have a YouTube channel, talk about it on there. If you have a a Twitter account or if you have um, a LinkedIn account, then post something that will make people think and make people do some research and understand some of these topics and, and just do your part, whatever that might be. If you're a hiring manager, make sure that you're talking about and addressing equitable hiring or pay inequity or... Anything that you have the ability to make change over, because I think sometimes people feel like, well, there's nothing I can do. Anyone can do anything. You can do whatever you can in your small. If it's if you're if you're stay at home mom, get a book and read to your children and make sure that your children are getting exposed to characters that are of different diverse um, backgrounds. Make sure that you're being um, an anti racism advocate in your household. So your children, when they see that, they know that's what my mom did. That's what she was an example of. And I've seen a lot of children from different diverse backgrounds where they were like the, the first person that I saw be an advocate for diversity was my parent. We On our podcast, on EdUp Experience, we had Bracken Darrell, who is the um, CEO of Logitech. And he came on and talked about technology and how they're ramping up um, with their uh, laptops and their, uh, their, their peripherals for their laptops, such as like the webcams for people that are working from home. And he said one of the first people that he remembered seeing being a, a social justice warrior was his mom. They went into, um, I think it was like a, a lunch counter and or some kind of store, and she saw a sign that said, you know, we won't serve certain people, and she spoke up, and she walked out of there, and she stormed out, and she's like, I won't patronize. That's these examples of things that your children need to see so that they can turn around, and then when they're an adult, or they're they're old enough to make a difference, I saw my parent do that, so that anybody can do anything to for the cause. It doesn't mean you have to be out there marching, even though you can. But I I think that we we have to get comfortable with the idea that all of us have influence. It's just a matter of whether we use it or how we use that influence.
0: Right, absolutely. So are you the first family member in your family to engage, you know, some of the social justice issues as you have
1: I probably am. I, I don't recall. I think that my family's very outspoken and I think that my family has always been, you know, wanting to see better. But I, I also feel as though like being a first generation American, it, 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 it's my unique opportunity to be a change maker. I think my parents being immigrants, they were so overwhelmed and confused and didn't really understand a lot. I think they were also a little bit surprised about the inequity here. I think a lot of people that are coming from all over the world and are, in, in, uh, are immigrants sometimes to America, and I'm saying everybody, but I just from my own observations, they tend to feel like America is a land of milk and honey. You know, it's kind of like, oh, you're gonna go to America, and everything's just great there, and you know, you it, as long as you try hard, you can do well. Especially when people are coming from countries that are not as developed, so they feel as though this is going to be the opportunity to go and just like have a business. And a lot of, uh, and then I think sometimes you, the immigrant experience get gets weaponized. So you have people that say, "Well, you're an immigrant. Your family, you know, you managed to go to college." Or I see a lot of immigrants having businesses. And I said, yeah, because you know what? A lot of immigrants, they pull together and they create their own, right. they don't try to integrate. I don't know, I'm
0: Absolutely.
1: I'm Jamaican, my family's Jamaican, I was born in UK, and I don't know, I can count on one hand the number of Jamaicans, like black from either first generation or originally from Jamaica that went to college. Because a lot of them, the the first thing they do is they, they start a business or they might go to tech school and maybe get a diploma in mecha- like my, my dad did. He was a mechanic, my mom was a nurse. So they, they're not college driven. A lot of times they're like, look, I'm gonna get something really quick and do something with my hands so I can later maybe as a nurse work for myself and just do like, you know, just to have clients or I'm a mechanic, I'm going to open up my shop or I know how to cook. I'm going to open a restaurant. And then they commute, they create their own communities. The same thing that we see in South Florida here with the Latino community, a lot of Cubans. If you go, like I've worked in Hialeah and it's almost like, if you don't speak Spanish, you might as well just go ahead and just not even try to get a job, (laughs) not even try to get a job down there. Right. Because they've created their own their own beauty supply stores, their own Cuban uh, cafes, their own mechanic, everything that you need. If you want to find that in certain areas of Miami, they've all just been like, hey, we're going to create our own community. So I think it's sometimes unfair, you know, that you get painted that way.
0: Right. Yeah. In reality of it, although, uh, in truth, that that's in part what America has sold yes. to many of the Americans.
1: Absolutely.
0: So what is to be American? Um, it, it's to have your own sense of taste, your own religion, um, your, your own uh, culture, in a sense. And so America, in a sense, at one time, prided itself on, yes, we all recognize that we're all American, Um, But we also respect the diversity of America and all those cultures and subcultures that make up America. Yes, that's Uh, true. And so I I think there's a little bit of shift away from uh, um, respecting that. What what America afforded so many uh, the opportunity to do without shame if you will.
1: Absolutely. And I think the thing that also for me as a a fellow black, even though I'm not officially like, you know, technically not black American, my heart still is sad for those that are black in America, that when they're not able to have their own business or they're not able to reach certain You know, goals—whether it's a college degree or whatever society says this is the pinnacle—then it's oh well. Liz has one. Liz has a degree. Liz is doing this. Liz is doing that, and then that kind of pitting one person against another. And I think that's the part that made me want to be more vocal about inequity because I felt as though a lot of people would say, "Well, you're a perfect example of why America does work. You're an immigrant. You're black. You're very driven. You've reached so many different career milestones and, 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 done so many great things, that means that it works. And I'm always of the mindset of the oh, world, there's Oprah, there's Michael Jordan, there's Jay-Z. I mean, I could list black Americans that have been successful, but if the majority of the community, when we're 13%, 13 to 14, 15% of the population and the majority of people are not doing well, in a classroom, if I'm teaching a class and there's a certain percentage of student, a certain demographic of students that always don't do well, I have to look at myself. I'm not looking at those students. And so I think America as a country tends to just demonize whoever's not doing well. So immigrants have been able to do well because, like you said, they bought into the idea that you come here, you work hard, you hustle. And you can live the American dream. And unfortunately, the black American community has been targeted. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. It is what it is. Out of slavery, there was segregation. There were red line laws, legal ways of segregating. There was separate but equal in the school system. School systems are still now spending $1,000 more per student in suburban areas as opposed to some of the more urban areas where some of the more um, marginalized communities tend to live because they can't afford to live in the suburban areas. The school funding comes from taxpayer dollars from the property taxes. And if the property taxes are lower because the housing values are lower in a black neighborhood because the property appraiser goes out and says, well, this house is only worth 100,000, but that same exact house, if it was in a suburban all white area would be worth 200,000, then property taxes are not going to be able to fund the K-12 elementary school that mm-hmm. my son, if I lived in that neighborhood, might go to. So out the gate, as a kindergartner, my son is having less resources, less qualified teachers, less ability as he gets older to have access to AP classes so that he can be prepared for college. Less math skills, less reading, less English, less support system. So then when these students turn around at graduation in high school and they're not prepared for college or they uh, haven't had proper counseling because there's not enough guidance counselors for, my high school was 90% black, we had 2000 students. I think we had like one guidance counselor, maybe two. So when you have schools that are severely underfunded, under-resourced, and then you look at those students as compared to the same exact student that may be you know, across town, but that student has access to several counselors and a lot of resources and uh, SAT prep courses and everything else that is coming from the fact that they have better funding in that school because of the school district um, and the property taxes in that area being higher. And then you turn around and blame the student and say to the student, like, hey, you know, why didn't you go to college and why didn't you apply for all these things. And the students like, well, I don't even know anyone in my family that has been to college. I don't even understand anything about college. I didn't have any resources or or access. And, and I didn't have that either, but I might be a Michael Jordan. That doesn't mean everybody's Michael Jordan. You know, some people might be Allen Iverson and they need a little bit more. They're still great, but maybe they're not as great as Michael Jordan. So I think that's
0: Absolutely.
1: sometimes where I get frustrated. I I, I feel as though that, that I love the idea of the American dream, the idea of come here, hustle, maybe do a business. You don't have to necessarily go to college because I don't believe that. Even as a college instructor, I don't believe you have to go to college. But I do feel as though pitting one person against another and saying it's a meritocracy and everybody has access. As someone that's worked in education, both K through twelve and higher education for twenty years. That's just not true. Like, if it was true, then I would be the first one to say yes. Education is equal, and everybody has access to it. But if you, if if someone's saying pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but you don't even know what a bootstrap is, you've never seen a bootstrap, and you have no one around to explain to you, maybe you'll go out and look it up, and maybe you'll you'll you know walk through the snow and go to a library and and try to get on a computer and try to figure out what a bootstrap is. But if you don't have that extra drive and you don't have anyone telling you, Hey, you can go find out what a bootstrap is so that you can pull yourself up by it. Then that's not fair to say to that person, well, that means that you didn't want it bad enough. You know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the questions I would ask you, you know, with your level of engagement um, and the work that you do, how are you doing in this pandemic, you know, sort of spiritually, emotionally, um, psychologically, you know, what do you find the most challenging and, and more specifically, you know, how are you dealing with it?
1: There's a lot of days that I have a hard time. I definitely struggle some days because I, I, I it goes back to what you said originally. I know that a lot of speaking out and a lot of educating people and, and I get messages every day, like on social media from people telling me, thank you for I didn't realize that, or this made me go do additional research or no, I'm going to be more focused on seeing how I can make a difference in this community or that community. So that part is very rewarding, but there are a lot of days that I feel overwhelmed or I feel like, wow, this was a lot to try to figure out how to be able to mobilize and, and lift my voice and and try to educate. And it's different from being in the classroom, because in the classroom, I have a set amount of time to influence maybe 10, 15 students, and I want them to have a particular outcome. In this case, like you said, it's like you want to influence everyone around you. You, you want to influence the country, you want to influence the world, and there's so many different things that you see that need to change, and you want to be a part of that, and you know that you may never see the outcome of it. So that part, I think, can be difficult, but the part of me that just keeps pushing me forward is wanting to see better for my children and wanting to see better for everyone else's children and grandchildren. So I think it's just an up or down. It's a struggle for sure, especially with the sheltering in place. You don't necessarily get some of the the usual social cues that you would from just being around people and just having that Mm -hmm. sense of community. But I've taken to being online and, and developing friendships with people that are on the same mindset of, you know, we, in order for us to make things better, we have to be a part of that change. We have to be a part of pushing the conversation forward. You're pushing the conversation forward. And a lot of us feel strongly that in order for change to happen, the first thing is to take away the stigma of that there needs to be changed. So that only comes from conversation and people embracing the idea that just like anything else, if, if I want to, change for myself. Like if I wanted to lose weight, if I wanted to meet any other kind of personal development, you know, milestone, I would have to look in the mirror and say, okay, this is what I need to change. And how am I going to do it? So it's the same thing with the country, you know, it's the same thing with social justice. In order for us to make change, we have to first look in the mirror and be realistic. Like what's wrong first. We can't make change right. until we know what we need to do. Right. So
0: absolutely. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say you know, 2020 certainly has been an extremely challenging year for the most part, um, and it, it's perhaps has been, you know, when we, when we look at you know the election results, you know, we're a little bit more over, uh, a little bit more than a week uh, since uh, you know the the election cycle here, um, and, and there are some challenging days ahead. Um, so I believe it's it's perhaps. Never been more important to ask yourself, you know, what kind of America do I want? What kind of America do I want to live in? I want to work in. I want to raise my family. What kind of America do I believe in? And and more importantly, what am I willing to commit to doing to get there? What would you say to that?
1: I think that for me, my commitment is always to educating and always to truth telling. And I think that's really difficult. Sometimes we saw that in the last election cycle where it's almost like the the, the covers got ripped off America. America has always stood up as a world leader. America's always like this is we always know how to how to handle um, any kind of emergency. Anything that's happening that is challenging, America is going to know exactly what to do like like uh president obama gave a speech and he said you know we had the playbook we always have the playbook right so we're typically known as the go-to like we're the quarterback in the world and i think this situation it kind of really was a wake-up call like okay america's doesn't really know what to do america's floundering and i think that me as an individual i want to live in a country where there's opportunity where my i'm not afraid you know where my children are not afraid where there's not hateful rhetoric and i think that's where sometimes a lot of us and and some of us in the black community express disappointment i don't think the disappointment came from oh this this party believes in this kind of platform or that kind of platform that's not necessarily it because there's always going to be, there's never going to be a perfect party for every person. So I don't think we're necessarily looking for a party that's going to be perfect, especially given just the history of this country. But I think for many of us, the, the rhetoric and some of the, the, the fear of feeling like, wow, people are very emboldened where, you know, I had a lot of people that text me, they were like, be careful out there. And, and, and there's been a lot of those texts going around
0: lately because people don't feel safe. And that's another level of fear that many
1: of us unfortunately haven't had to deal with in our lifetime. We always have the regular flavor of fear of, okay, I got to just watch my back and be careful of how I navigate. But this was at a different level. And I think that was where a lot of us felt like we don't want to live in a country like that. We want to live in a country that is committed to change and where we can feel safe to advocate for change. We already know change has to happen. And that's been something we've been knowing. And it's been something that many of us have been working about or thinking about and our our parents and our grandparents or our forefathers, they've been thinking about and working on this for, you know, ever since probably we stepped foot in this country. So that's not the issue um, as far as the change needing to happen, but being able to navigate and just go about your day-to-day life in an in an environment where you don't feel as though. I read an article online and somebody said, even when you're driving, it's like the, the drivers are more aggressive. You know, you're seeing, you're seeing like someone has a, you know, some kind of like Trump sticker on their, on their bumper, or they have like a rebel yeah, flag and yeah. they're like pulling up to you and you're getting the finger and all this stuff is happening. Right. And it's like, and I noticed that too. And I, I thought it was me going crazy, but I'm like, even the, 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 even the road rate seems elevated. You know, we, we don't want that. We want to be able to navigate safe places safely. And we want to feel as though we can raise our voices and, and we know there's work to do. There's always been work to do and there will continue to be work to do, but Absolutely. we want to be safe while we do it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. But let me ask you this question from your perspective. Why do you think, you know, America is so divided on social justice issues?
1: Um, I think it's cognitive dissonance. Mm. Uh, As a a teacher, I have seen in K through 12 as well as in higher education. And people say, well, what do you, how do you know that I've seen it with my own eyes that textbooks and the curriculum does not teach the truth. And I've seen a lot of articles about this online lately as well in that we teach like a sanitized version of what America is and how America came to be. And that's not healthy because mm-hmm. in order for you to understand where you came from or, or and where you are, where you're going, you have to know like it's just like when they, we talk about adoption. Right. And they, they're like, oh, you should tell the child that they were adopted because then they're confused. They're like, well, was right. I given away? Was my mom just didn't want me? Was my mom? There's a difference in a narrative of your mom was, you know, abusing you, and your mom didn't want you, as opposed to, hey, your mom was a good person, and your mom just gave you up because she 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 couldn't handle what was happening, and she knew that she wanted to give you a better life, right? Those are two different narratives. So if you don't tell someone the accurate narrative, how they're going to proceed moving forward in their life, and how they perceive themselves is. Is going to be affected based on that narrative so i think that the the problem here in america is that a lot of times we're you know it's truth and justice and liberty and all those things that make america great but the other side of it isn't told the ugly side of the truth or if it is told is told like in like 20 minutes and then let's, t- mm, let's take mm. the rest of the five hours to talk about how great america is and there's there's Life doesn't work that way. There's good and there's bad, and people make mistakes and people learn and grow. But I, you can't learn and grow if you never even admit what you did wrong. And I think that's yeah. it, the, the original sin is bad enough. But then trying to brush something over and say it wasn't that bad, or you know you you you're, you're dwelling on it, or you you know you it's not my fault. It is your fault if you're not willing to look at okay, if something happens, and this is just a a very basic education tenant. If an event happens, typically there's cause and effect. So one thing can't happen. If you, if you, if I, God forbid, leave here today and I get in a car accident and I I hit somebody in the back of their bumper, there's, there's a chain reaction. That person may be late to work now. And then another thing may happen where they have a back pain and now they have to go to the doctor. Now. Later on down the line, you find out that that person has to have a surgery, and that surgery may cause them to, you know, their wife can't take the pressure of everything that's going on, so the wife leaves them. The kids are upset, so now the kids are, and then the kids are, are failing out of school. So that one small incident, and that's just a small minor thing that that happens right. in life. So imagine right. 400, 250 years of slavery. And for people to say, well, that was just one small thing that just happened. And now everything's fine. We're in a post-racial society. That's impossible. Because I gave you a, a, somebody getting a car accident and like five things that could happen as a result of that. So when people say, okay, we don't need to think about slavery and we don't need to think about what happened in from 1619 when black People first set foot in this country until 1865, when slavery was abolished. We—that's we, just a separate chapter, and let's focus on today. Th- that's logically that makes absolutely no sense because you had mm-hmm. segregation, you had separate but equal, you had all these laws that were put into place, redlining, you've had um, uh, the 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 prison industrial complex. From the chain gangs and the the laws that Mm -hmm. targeted blacks for vagrancy just because they didn't have a job they didn't have a job because they were not allowed to be in society and they weren't allowed to have a job so all these things the the war on drugs the the disparate amount of of people that are congregated in certain urban areas that leads to violence not because of um not because of them being proposed that they're really that they're more violent. Cause that's another argument I hear all the time. Well, black people are just more violent. No, if you put any poor people and you segregate them and they don't have the ability to get out of that area, like a, like a trap, they're going to be violent. It doesn't matter what their race is.
0: On, on a subconscious level. Absolutely. You know, on, on a very subconscious level and understanding and recognize that if, if you are going to uh, replace something, Or erase it. It has to be replaced with something positive. But when you've taken away all of my positive contributions. So now the prevailing thought is, what do you do with a group of people that you no longer have use for? Because you've taken away all the positive contributions. And so on a very subconscious level, you know, so many young African-American males carry this. idea of limiting beliefs that has been carried over. And someone would say, well, that, that happened, you know, years ago, you know. Um, But again, if you're going to go through this process of reconditioning the mind, if you will, if something is going, if something negative, it's going to be um, erased in a sense. It, It has to be replaced with something else. Otherwise, there's no sustainment. it doesn't stick there, right because then you you go back to that same cycle again gotcha. um and, and so it's it's a repeated cycle, I think that one had to recognize um you know the fact that um you know I, I woke up one day and I realized my my own worst enemy was right between my two mm-hmm. ears and I say that quite often because I realized. This, this level of conditioning that I, I came into an awakening and realization of that, that now I put the onus really back on me to figure out how do I navigate up out of this thinking? Where do I get that from? Why I'm thinking this way? What do I, and really begin to challenge that in a way. And again, if, if you're going to erase something or replace it, it has to be sort of replaced with something positive, and, and that's that's the crux of the whole entire problem. Is what what are you really replacing it with?
1: Yeah, it's scary because in just from being in higher education and school systems for about twenty years, African American history, Black history, African history, it's just not taught. You know, you, there is a prevailing mindset that Black creation thought began with slavery. So when you teach a group of people that your primary, like the first thing, your awareness started as a piece of property, how debilitating is that for us as a people, the black community, to not have been taught that there were civil civilizations in Africa long before Europe and advanced civilizations, not like the Absolutely. not the stuff that you see on yeah. TV, like a hut and somebody with a right. spear. We're talking Absolutely, about yeah cities upon cities, gold upon gold, Mansa Musa out of the kingdom of Mali, who was the richest Mm -hmm. man ever to have lived. And Mm -hmm. these things are not told. And if they're told, they're told in a way that's almost like a fairy tale, like it didn't really happen. Those things did happen. And there's, trust me, if they didn't happen, they wouldn't even be admitted. But the archaeological evidence is there. We see so much um, written, uh, documentation to show that all these things happen in our, in our history is more oral so that the, the written documentation is really not even the, the, the fact that those things happen and black students when they come into the classroom are never told any of this is I think a part of the problem because any student from another background if they're Italian they're Irish their families from any other country in say Europe they're aware of, oh, my family's from here. My family's from there. They may not know all the intricate details, but they don't have a sense of, I wasn't worthwhile. I was nothing. And now I have to move forward with the knowledge that I don't even really know what I am. And I think people just kind of like, oh, well, all of us are from from somewhere. Just don't worry about it. But if everything that you Mm -hmm. were fed was negative, then you have to worry about it because Mm -hmm. a, a child is from Italy is not being told that oh you were nothing. They're just oh I'm Italian. Oh I'm Irish. Oh I'm this. I'm that. So they have a sense of belonging, and then in their day to day life, they're not told that they're nothing. So then it, it doesn't it doesn't really permeate anyway. But when you have a child that's told that, and then when they go into the school system, they're treated that way, and then when they look around their neighborhood, that's what's happening. I, I I find it almost it's almost laughable to think that people can overcome that because it takes a very, very strong person to even overcome abuse within their household, let alone oh abuse God, from the media, from society, from your neighborhood, from your teachers, from your job. Everything around you is basically showing that you're not. Worthy, so then, where do you get developed the sense that you are worthy? I think it's mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. kind of boggles the mind that people are expected to be this strong because it would be very difficult for anybody under any circumstances, let alone someone that's battling the entire society.
0: Absolutely, I mean, there's a there's a sense of 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 being disconnected, being lost in a sense. Um, you know, when you look globally. Uh, In America, you know, African-Americans in America are are the only group of people sort of totally amputated away from the tree, if you will. On the global perspective, if you look anywhere around the world, um, most immigrants still maintain in the household uh, their language, their religion, their dress, their sense of taste, all those customs and courtesies. And then not only that, they'll get the opportunity to visit, um, you know, their native country, if you will, at, at some point in time, for the most part.
1: Which is um, which is why when people compare like um, immigrants, black immigrants from the Caribbean, I'm always like, no, because I know my family frequently went back and forth to Jamaica. You know, me not being you know, not being born there, not so much. But I have family members where they would frequent back and forth several times a year. They owned houses in Jamaica, even though they lived here in the States, they always had that connection with who they were and where they came from. And mm-hmm. we see that in South Florida with the Cuban community. So that gives you a sense of belonging. That gives you a sense of, when you go, when you come from a country where everybody, teachers, lawyers, doctors, the janitor, the gas station attendant, the president. Everybody is from your race or ethnicity. You have a totally yeah, different yeah. mindset when you go to a country yeah. that's majority white or a majority anything, because you already have your sense of well-being and your sense of worth right. from seeing that all around you growing up. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I get I get asked a lot, uh, Vince. How would you advocate? you know, uh, for diversity, equity, inclusion with people who simply, you know, don't care or understand is important. How would you speak to that?
1: Um, I get sometimes told that we have to make the case for diversity. Somebody told me that a few weeks ago, and I was so triggered by that because I think that sometimes people do feel as though in order to advocate, you have to make some kind of business case. Or you have to say, hey, you know, it would be beneficial for you to have different ideas because then your company can be more flexible and they'll know, you know, what's going on and they'll be a little bit more responsive. I just think the same way that women have been able to just say, you know what, we need to be in these spaces and Mm -hmm. they don't really make a case for it. They just say women need to be in these spaces the same way men do. I think the same thing happens with, I love what the LGBTQ community says. They're just loud and apologetic. And they're just like, we're going to be in these spaces. We're going to, there's like, there's nothing that you can, we're not going to make a case for why our sexual identity is something you should accept. You're just going to accept it. And that's just that. And they just Mm -hmm. do it. And I think that that's a part of with black people. I think we've been taught that, well, we, you have to kind of like figure out how to make it palatable for the mainstream. You have to show them like why you would be a great, because yeah, if, you know, if you get me to be, you know, the principal at your school, then, you know, a lot of those black kids, I can go out there and, you know, rap with them and make them see right. that it's cool right. to be an educator. I- I'm not doing that. No, mm-hmm. you just need to mm-hmm. let me be in those spaces and not even let me like like James Baldwin says, I don't want you to let me be anything. I just want you to leave me alone and just let me do what I need to do. Like you don't have to actually let me because even the idea of saying let me is problematic. So I I Mm -hmm. think that as far as the diversity piece, the advocating for it is just like we are a part of society and we're going to be in every area of society the same way that women want to be in every area of society, the same way the LGBTQ community wants to be in every area of society. And the advocating is that we are going to be a part of every area of society. We just saw the first black woman, biracial uh, woman in in Kamala Harris, who has Mm -hmm. been uh, elected to the vice-presidential position. And that office is what she deserves because everybody else has access to be able to be it. So there, I, I think that's really where I, where I come down Where it comes to advocating. I think advocating is just like being. There, should be, there shouldn't be a need for us to advocate for something. We live in this country where 13% to 14, 15% of the population. So we should be in every area, whether it's the highest levels of government, whether it's corporate America, whether it's education, we should be represented in all those areas, just like women should be represented, just like every other community should be represented, because that's just fair. That's just what it should be.
0: All right. So, you know, you spent a great amount of time, as you you spoke of, in, in the learning institutions. Overall, how do you see the role of institutions in shaping question a lot. And I think um, uh, the higher education institutions
1: especially are responsible for shaping the minds and and giving the young people um a foundation for being able to think critically, obviously for learning the skill that they're going to use on the job, but also to be able to think critically and to be able to navigate spaces and to understand what's happening. So for us as institutions, we have to make sure that our institutions reflect that. And I think higher education overall has not done a really good job. About 5% of college faculty are black, which is really underrepresented, especially as we go into the next 20 years, students of color, black students and other students of color are going to start to be the majority there some career schools and community college, colleges, they're about 30% of the population. And even though there's still a very small percentage of a lot of these um, elite schools, which is still problematic as well. But as we go into this enrollment decline and cliff, there's less and less students. And the the students that are coming from these more diverse backgrounds are actually going to start to be the majority. So our colleges and universities have to reflect that. We have to see that in the classroom because if we see it in the classroom, there, I think Kamala Harris actually put out a stat that if a, if a child has a black teacher by, I think it was third grade, they're more likely to be successful, to go on to graduate high school, to be more successful later on. So we want to look at what are we doing to recruit these um, instructors, whether it's K through 12 teachers, whether it's college instructors, what does the process look like? Where are we looking for people? Are we putting up barriers that would otherwise not cause people to want to go into these uh, fields. So what does the pay look like? There's so many different areas that us in education need to think about so that we can be more reflective of our student bodies. We can support our student bodies. I know for me going to a PWI, I didn't have any black. I had one black teacher the whole time I was in undergrad. And that's problematic because you as a student, you need to see yourself reflected in leadership, uh, 7% 7% of higher education um, administrators are black. That's problematic. We need black leaders. We need black leaders to push the agenda so that these students can get the support and access that they need. We can retain them better. We can graduate them better so that they can go out and be the next generation of leaders.
0: Absolutely. So so I have to ask from a, from a policy perspective, if you had your way for a day what would your top three priorities be?
1: In um, in higher education, or just
0: in in um, in matters of higher education, social justice, any one of your three policies, that's, that's you know could be relating. What would your top three policies would be?
1: Wow, it's a really good question. I think that the biggest agenda needs to be better equity in hiring and it needs to be measurable and it needs to be meaningful uh we have tons of talent out here and it's really demoralizing when you look at some of the stats and you see that these companies are just not hiring the black Mm -hmm. talent and if you don't have black talent whether it's in organizations whether it's in higher education then it's then you can't really move the needle. Because if if mm-hmm. I looked at a stat yesterday and black women specifically are overrepresented in low paying jobs throughout the United States. We're overrepresented in terms of the workforce and overrepresented in terms of the the lower paying jobs. So that has to change. I think that in order for us to have better outcomes where whether it's closing the wealth gap, whether it's uh wealth equality, whether it's home ownership. There's so many different measures and markers for well-being. And if we don't if we're not in the spaces to be able to have opportunities, then there's no way for us to be able to close all those other areas. So that would probably be my number one would be addressing in meaningful ways, proportionate to population, the percentages of black people in higher education and in the corporate environments. We're already overrepresented in the the lower paying jobs. And we need to focus on, we have plenty of uh, college educated and professional black and other people of color as well, but specifically in this instance, Black. Uh, professionals tend to be the lowest represented. So, what is happening there, and if that needs to be addressed, like in California, they're looking at um, look, looking at the whole idea of if they want to take another look at quotas. I don't know the mechanism for it, but if it's quotas is what it takes and that's just what it takes. Some people don't like quotas because they feel like, well, it's just putting a number or it means that, you know, it's reverse racism. Well, clearly the, I don't see color that is not working because it means that if, if you get my resume and my resume says Keisha, as opposed to my resume saying, um, Karen, then, Keisha is not getting an interview, and Karen is, and that's not fair. So we need to figure out how to address that equitably, meaningfully, and measurably.
0: Right. Wow, that's, that's, that's great. So let me ask you this. Do you, do you think the Black Lives Matter movement have the capacity to achieve um, a more perfect union, if you will, and from a strategic perspective, where would you like to see you know, the movement transitioned to?
1: I think that the the great thing about the, the Black Lives Matter movement is that it's giving more visibility and the resurgence since the George Floyd incident, since that murder, it's given some meaning and and given a cause to coalesce around. And I I just feel as though it's it's almost like when they talk about fingers being spread out. And then if you push if you pull them together, they're like a fist. So I I feel as though for many of uh the 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 ones of us that are speaking out and being so vocal about social justice, I definitely feel as though they're just those areas that we want to kind of zone in on and focus on, whether it is holding uh, organizations, corporate organizations more accountable, whether it's social justice issues and and police brutality, whether it's just um, wealth distribution and, and ensuring that the laws are equitable. I definitely feel as though there's a capacity to reach a more perfect union, but people need to get out of the mindset, and those in the majority culture need to get out of the mindset of the idea of meritocracy. Because mm-hmm. there are so many laws and rules legally now that
0: mm-hmm.
1: are disadvantaging those that are in marginalized communities. There's so many issues. We saw this with COVID, where Black community is disproportionately affected when we're talking about healthcare. We talked about education, where children, even K through 12, are disproportionately disadvantaged. All of these, um, we're talking about hiring and Black women making 62 cents to a dollar, black men making about 80 cents to a dollar for their white cohorts in a workplace. That's not mm-hmm. fair. So these things need to be addressed and they need to be addressed in a way that's meaningful. If the Black Lives Matter movement can push the envelope and and push the conversation so that other groups and other individuals can have just something to coalesce around, then I definitely feel like that's a positive thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So would you would you say that, um, you know, things are getting better or worse? I mean, because if you if you ask uh, most individuals, um, you know, they have this idea of um, things are getting worse. That's a really good question.
1: And I th- I think about that question almost daily. In some ways, I feel as though things are getting worse to a certain extent in that it goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning. There's been, I think, especially over the last few years, more emboldened people feeling as though they won't have any repercussions if they do something so that, that I think is scary for me. The idea that maybe before people would have been a little bit more cautious and been like, okay, I might, you know, start that or do that, but you know, I don't want to get in trouble. And now people feeling like, oh, I won't get in trouble. If I do this, nothing's going to happen. And that I think is scary. And in that way, I think that's it's getting worse. But I do think it's getting better in that those of us that want to speak up, those of us that have been working to make sure that our voices are amplified and that we really shine a light on some of these issues that has gotten better I think that people are no longer willing to sit on the sideline and not say anything because I don't want to get people on my job mad or I don't want people to think that I'm a troublemaker I told my husband go ahead and pick up a second shift on your job or whatever you have to do because if someone on my job don't like it I just want (laughs) to have a job. That's the way I'm looking at it. You know, I work in higher education, which is very traditional. Typically higher education is a little bit more conservative depending on where you work. And I told him, you know what? I don't care about that because guess what George Floyd and his family and his children, they don't get to worry about those kind of things. The things that they're worrying about are so beyond what I could ever even imagine as a mother. So mm-hmm. for me to know that I work in higher education and I told somebody the other day, I tell my students, speak up, you know, be an advocate, go out there, be a critical thinker, don't just, and then I'm out here just going along with the program and just doing things and, and not speaking up, knowing that I'm seeing things all around me that aren't right. That's being a hypocrite. So for me,
0: well, absolutely. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's always this fear of, um, retribution, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. um and and so, so many people in the situations where um they would like to do more, they recognize they need to do more, but now it's 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 this fear of retribution, mm-hmm.
1: and that happens a lot, you know a lot of jobs they don't they don't want you necessarily to be outspoken. Mm.
0: so so what would you say you know a, a way to get involved in this in, in you know during this pandemic and um, there's less, um, you know, connection, if you will, engagements, if you will, um, and, and this idea on using social media from a positive perspective. How, how would how would you recommend individuals use social media to become more impactful?
1: I think the great thing about social media, and I see this as an educator, is that even with the pandemic, we've had to pivot in higher education to how students receive information. So a lot of the students, they want short little bursts of information. They The Gen Zs are different from like a Gen X or a Boomer or some of the older generations that could sit and were used to. Like I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm original latchkey key generation. So we came home, we cooked our own Raymond noodles. We sat down, we did our homework on our own. We were very self-directed no one had to tell us anything we were used to being by ourselves quietly so we could, i could sit and read like when i was in college i would sit and study for like hours on end and i would not, i didn't even have a cell phone so there was nothing to keep mm-hmm. me distracted this generation, I have a daughter that's 20, 21 going on 22 and she's a Gen Z and they're all over the place, you know, they, and it's mm-hmm. just not, not a bad thing, but that's just how they were raised. They're so digital natives, they always had a, a phone in their hand. They get their information, in short bursts from Instagram, from YouTube. They're looking, if they want to know how to do something, they're not going to read an article. They're going to, a lot of times right. look at a quick five minute YouTube video, got it and go do it. So I think that social media has the ability and we've seen that with COVID and having to deploy a lot of our classes online and find ways to engage our students. Social media has a lot of potential to teach. You know, social media, a lot of students I've heard from, talking to some of these younger students, they like to get their information from little short nuggets. And if we can take social media and use it as a teaching tool, use it. A lot of the things that I've learned even over the last six months when I as being more vocal in uh, issues dealing with social justice. A lot of it I have learned from social media, being pointed to articles or looking at short video clips or finding like a little meme or something that's led me to maybe, uh, I had a meme that I saw so circulating around about the questions that you need to ask in order to be more diverse. And I posted it and someone said, oh, that meme came from, um, uh, a a, a, a social justice or equity uh, professor out of Colorado State. And I reached out to the professor and ended up having like an hour conversation with him about his uh, philosophy about diversity. So it just kind of shows you that everyone's on social media. Everyone is putting information out there. Social media can be a great tool to teach. Social media can be a great tool for people to just maybe see a picture or see a statement or see a short video clip and say wow that's really interesting let me find out more about why this is such an issue uh, i've posted things about redlining that people are like i didn't even know that was a practice i was led to go research it to find out more so there's mm-hmm. different ways that we can leverage social media And use it as a way to stimulate a a potential student, whether they be a young person or even older people that are set in their career and just don't know about these issues and, and want to be more
0: educated and want to be more aware of what's going on in the country around us. So, Elizabeth, what, what can we expect to see from you in 2021? <laughs> That's a really good what question. Does well, what does 2021 look like for That's you? That's
1: a really good question. I'm going to keep pushing the envelope, making sure that I talk about social justice, and I always speak about it from a historical context. So, not just, okay, we're here today, but what led to that? Because we need to understand what led to it. Just like in when we're thinking about ourselves as a person, like where did I come from? Where am I now? Or where am I going? And I want us to think about that as a society as well. When it comes to racial equity and diversity and being more inclusive as a society, how can we be better? And I'm going to continue to push that message, whether it's on social media, whether it's in articles, whether it's just podcasting. I always want to think about what I can do to add to the discourse and make sure that I'm talking to people like yourself that are very active and that want to have these conversations and make sure that they bring relevant discourse to those that might not know about it or might know a little bit and want to know more. So that's really what I'm going to continue to do. I want to continue to push the envelope. I definitely want to continue to use my voice in a meaningful way and uh, make sure that I'm adding something positive. A lot of people have been saying, you need to write a book. You need to,
0: you know, do more. So
1: that may be on the horizon. And I think that if you would have asked me this time last year, if I would have been talking to you, I would have been like, oh my gosh, no, I could never do that. So you know, I think that I'm leaving myself open to opportunity and making sure that whatever I do, I contribute to society and especially to advancing the cause of racial equity, especially for blacks in America. And, doing-
0: and, and, and that's, so, that's so key. And, um, you know, I always say that to individuals that um, if, if you're delivering massive value, wherever you may be, that then today you have an obligation um, to replicate the blueprint in a mentorship program. Yes. And so, who who are your replacements that you are preparing? I present that to leaders oftentimes. Yes. Is is that have you identified your replacement? Because all great leaders prepare their replacements. True. And if you're delivering this value. Then now your 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 last obligation is is to replicate that in which you're doing um, in a mentorship program. Good point. And, and so, oftentimes we don't do that, and so we die with the scepter in our hand. <laughs> and so, a lot of the time, the great work that we do oftentimes gets left behind.
1: Good point. Uh, point. And so that's
0: wonderful. So, Elizabeth, before um, we go, how can people connect with you? Some of the things you're doing, some of the things you're planning, either online or through social media.
1: I am all over social media. I am on um, Instagram, Uh, I'm on Twitter, I have a podcast. Uh, edupexperience.com is where people can listen to the podcast. We talk to higher education leaders all over the country. We also have a YouTube channel, the edupexperience YouTube channel is where I have kind of really made my target and my focus talking to uh, leaders in the black community about issues that we care about. So that's primarily the vehicle, not necessarily for higher education, but more just in the black community and talking to those that have perspectives on our lived experience on our YouTube channel. So those are the primarily the areas that people can connect with me. I'm all over LinkedIn. I post literally every day. So anyone that wants to reach out to me can just search for me on LinkedIn. And I'm more than happy to always connect with people that are doing big things and, and trying to make a difference in the community because that's what I'm, I'm all about as well.
0: Absolutely, that's, that's wonderful. So Elizabeth, thank you once again for joining us today. And it has certainly been a pleasure And we look forward to seeing and hearing from more of you. So please come back and check on us soon.
1: Will do. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and an honor.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for staying with us. We certainly hope that you enjoyed today's episode. So make sure you join our Facebook group, Out Front with Vince Noble. And don't forget to comment, rate, share, and subscribe to Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download or listen to your podcast. Until next time, remember, you still get to write your own life story.